Welcome to Talking Kotlin. On this episode, I'm sitting down with my good friend, Michael Hunger, and we're going to discuss everything to do with graph databases. Hey, Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, Hardy, happy to be here. Oh, it's awesome having you. I've been wanting to chat with you for so long. I, I even actually started this podcast so that I could actually have a chance to chat with you. Amazing. We should do it. Okay. Well. <laughs> Slight exaggeration yeah. there, but anyway. Yeah. And podcasting is amazing because you can listen to them when you're running, and that's uh, really, really useful. Yeah. Now all I have to do is run. Yeah. Like or any or or that for that matter, any physical exercise. <laughs> I swear, it's like I I really really try. You know, I I started to jog, uh, got back pains. Go to the doctor. The doctor's like, yeah, you don't need to be jogging. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I start to go on the cycle bicycle. Go to a doctor. Yeah, bicycle is no good for you. <laughs> I'm like, so what's good for me? What exactly could I potentially do that is good for me? Like, oh well, you could do yoga. <laughs> okay. Oh <my> <laughs> okay. Apparently, any exercise that I like, yeah. including squash, is bad for me. Oh. So there you go. <sighs> anyway, uh, so right, so but yeah, welcome to the show. Uh, honestly, it's 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 a pleasure to have you on. I've been a I've been a big fan of everything you, you do uh, yeah, for so here. long. Same here. <laughs> and uh, you know, I really wanted to discuss uh, databases in in particular graph databases. So and and some of the stuff that you're doing with it and with Kotlin. So I thought, oh, you know, let's just um, come on the show and discuss this. So tell those uh, listeners that may not know what you're doing, which I think is probably just a few people left in the world, what exactly it is that you do? Yeah, so my main job is uh, heading up the developer relations team at Neo4j. So basically helping all people around the world that want to use Neo4j in any kind of circumstance and project uh, to be successful and happy with before they do. That includes building integrations, providing examples, giving talks, writing books, writing articles, helping a lot of people on, on Slack, Stack Overflow, and, and, and so on, and uh, supporting and encouraging contributors and people that want to write uh, things like drivers or integrations or libraries or visualization libraries or things like that. So basically trying to um, pursue and, and encourage people to, to use Neo4j, but also help them you know, um, get started and, and get going with that. And otherwise, in, in the remainder of my life, I do a lot of other open source work, so contribute to other projects, uh, talk at conferences, support uh, new speakers. Um, I try to uh, teach kids more um, programming. So uh, I started a girls coding club at my daughter's school uh, where every week, actually this afternoon, um, again, uh, go there and we have some fun with hardware and software and scratch and, and uh, things like that. So that's, that's Oh, what, that's nice. Yeah. That's, the, the, it's really does fit. your daughter actually program? Yeah, she does actually. And she's quite, quite good and really creative. So it's, I intentionally wanted to have an, um, an activity where we don't have boys around, um, just the girls. So there's no like competing things going on. And, and what's really impressive is to see all the creativity that the girls bring to the table. And you kind of start with something and then they go off and, and are super creative in terms of what else you can do and how you can solve something. And, and that's really uh, fulfilling for me to, to see. And, uh, and uh, I want to encourage everyone to you know, do something similar because I think that's, that's really important. That's awesome to hear, and I and I, I think that we need to actually do a show about how to get kids to program. Oh, that's a that's a great idea. Yeah, 
I have not been successful in my attempts with my three kids. Um, the, the little one is still sick, so I still have a chance. Uh, but the other two is like, no. And then I see some other, you know, colleagues, speakers, etc., that have been quite successful. And then, and I'm like, is it just me? But then, you know, recently I was talking to uh, Simon Brown, you know, Simon, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, he said, yeah, my, my kids don't program either. I'm like, okay, thank God it's not just me then. It's, like, it's not that I'm a really, really bad father then. Yeah, <laughs> don't worry. I mean, that's oftentimes like if you're like a uh, teacher or something like that, then you have the hardest time with your kids, right? So it's, um, I think it's about instilling like curiosity and, and like encouraging them to, to do stuff. And then what's really cool is we have these little hardware boards that we use that are similar to Arduino, uh, which uh, you can then have like, light up lights or move stuff around or um, you can control motors and, and, and things like that. And and so you have something physical and, and that makes also a difference. So not just, you know, software code, but also something where you can um, interact with the physical world and, and it's more um, easy to grasp than what kind of does it mean that I now, you know, switch on this port and then an LED goes on and, and, and so on. So it's um, easier than in that way. I, I bought one of those two and it ended up me playing with it more than <laughs> that. Uh, and, and this summer I said to my middle one, I'm like, okay, we're going to give this another attempt. Tell me anything you want to program, anything. I will, if it's mobile, whatever, I will learn it and I will teach you. Yeah. And he says to me, because um, he's been, you know, they're, they're crazy about Fortnite. He's like, okay, I want to program the Unreal Engine. Okay. I'm like, okay. Um, yeah. Anything else other than that? <laughs> I mean, it shouldn't be too hard, right? So I talked to a bunch of folks and they said, actually, it's not because uh, the, these uh, 3D engines are quite sophisticated and have kind of a high level of abstraction. So it's not really that complicated to get started with. Uh, but it's C++, no? Uh, yeah, but I think there are also like tools that you can run on top of that, that, uh, you know, build scenes and worlds and, and, and stuff like that. And then... Um, Basically, um, you you feed this into the engine, and then you already have some like existing behavior. There's also a quite cool project. Uh, it's a Java NetBeans-based project. It's called Alice Alice 3D, which is a 3D world um, um, building block program. So it's similar to Scratch, but with a 3D world where you have objects, and then you can animate them and have give them like uh, movements and react to events and stuff like that. So perhaps that's an first step in, into this direction of having a 3d world that you can uh, actually program and actually uh, what i what i meant to uh, mention is uh, last week with the girls we did um, java jshell uh, programming uh, just to get them a little bit into into text-based programming for minecraft modding going on and so i thought what would be really cool is to have an simple um, kotlin shell online that's really just like a prompt and execute so not like try kotlin because that's like for kids, it's too much like Chrome around it with too many bits and pieces that are kind of distracting. So I wonder uh, if do you know any uh, like pure Kotlin shell that has just like a like yeah system? we've got that. It's uh, it's actually called a uh, run Kotlin code or something like that. Um, oh, the, the you, JavaScript uh, fragments that you can edit, right? Please. Yeah. Um, so if you if you go to kotlinbyexample.org, yeah, uh, I actually use it on there. Uh, and it's basically a couple of scripts that you you include on your site, and uh, and you can just basically run any kind of uh, script there. Okay, cool. So, so I'll, I'll use that work. next time because I think, uh, especially in in terms of conciseness and and uh, consistency, Kotlin is much better and easier to teach than than Java. So I'll uh, give that a try. 
and and see how it goes with the with the kids. Cool. cool. Let us know. We're yeah. talking about Cartman. Um, let's talk about Neo4j and uh, graph databases. <laughs> so, so you mentioned, of course, you are uh, at uh, Neo4j, which is a company that does, well, the company that does graph databases. Yeah. I mean, I know there's a couple of them, but definitely probably Neo4j is the most well known. So can you tell our listeners what a graph database is for those that are new to the topic? Yeah, sure. So a graph database is um, a database that stores data in a, in a way that's quite natural to, to us humans. So basically, uh, if you think about discussing a problem with someone on a whiteboard, you start drawing circles and arrows between like people and companies or events or products and, and, and so on. So everyone does this, like doodling on a whiteboard, right? And um, actually, if you think about it, our whole... Um, world is kind of structured like that, that you have like things that are related to each other, right? So there's nothing in our world that's kind of disconnected uh, bits of information. You have, um, you know, um, companies in, in, in markets, you have politics with all the countries that are involved or all the players that are involved. You have uh, in science, there uh, are experiments which have many um, variables that go into that or in computer science, um, you have dependency graphs and ASTs and uh, in networking, you have like all the physical networks, but then also the uh, logical networks on top. And whoever tried to kind of store this kind of data in a, in a database had quite some pains, I think, at least I did uh, in the past, because it's really hard in a um, schema-based database uh, to, to store these kind of rich com connections without having to declare all the foreign keys and everything. And so the folks that... Uh, built Neo4j had exactly the same problem and thought, oh, it would actually be cool to have a database that can store actually entities that we call nodes uh, that are connected with relationships, with arbitrary relationships, right? So basically all the information that you have in the real world, you can put like one-to-one -one into this database. And um, every node can have any type of uh, attributes or properties and also relationship uh, can have any type of properties as well. So you can really put all the information that you have available into into your data model and into your data. And the cool thing is that it's schema free, so you can add data as it comes in. So you're not kind of required to declare schema upfront that says, this is the only thing that I'm allowing uh, allowed to do, but whatever you want to uh, put in, you can put in. And basically a graph database is a database that's built from the ground up to store this kind of information efficiently uh, by um, basically uh, creating uh, for each entity um, a, a list of all their neighbors. So um, for instance, if you're Hardy's or you work at JetBrains, you'll speak at these conferences, you have written these articles, you, you know these people, all this information is kind of basically stored with the Hardy node, right? So all these connections to these, to these other entities. And that's why uh, graph databases can resolve a really complex queries that would usually have a, like a ton of joins very efficiently uh, from there. Stepping back for a moment, so I can, I can have a, in a relational model, I can have a table of um, people yeah. and then I have another table which is the, I don't know, the, the, the conferences that each of these speakers, for instance, have, have spoken at. Yeah. Um, so how is that actually represented in in the graph model in Neo4j? Yeah, so what is uh, this table in, in, in the relation database is a, is a node in, in Neo4j. So basically an entity that has uh, a type or several types uh, because you can combine them. So because you're a person, but you're also in, um, 
speaker, but you're also a writer and you're also an, uh, a developer and so on. So you can also tag on multiple types on a, so it's similar to like interfaces or traits. Um, right. And then you can put in any kind of uh, attributes into these uh, nodes and they are by instance. So you don't have to have them all share the same attributes. So for instance, if you have for one person, you have many more uh pieces of information in about someone else and you put all this information in and for someone else you might only have the name or something like that. Okay, so in, to, to understand, like just keeping it simple uh, in, in a single relationship where I have a, a, a speaker and, and a talk, I would have a, a node object which would be my speaker and then some relationship representation between them and then that the, the talk object. Exactly. Right? Or, or the conference exactly. object. And then if I have um, two speakers and I would have a second note for that speaker and what you're saying is that the, these don't even need to share a schema that they could actually yeah. be different exactly right? exactly and, and and the problem in, in a relation database is as soon as you have many to many relationships you have to create joint tables because relation databases don't have any like built-in mechanics for properly representing relationships like foreign keys between many to many you always have to do these joint tables and uh, oftentimes in in real world uh, business models you have like hundreds or thousands of these joint tables between your entities and that gets really cumbersome and hard to manage and uh, the problem is also when the database tries to query this data uh, they always have to go through uh, join into the joint table and then from the joint table to the other entity so it's like always primary key or foreign key lookups that they have to do in, in the database indexes. So every join adds basically two, two lookups to the, um, to the execution plan, which makes it quite expensive. So, and now focusing on, on even without the relationship, if I have, um, if I have the same type of entity, mm -hmm. be it a, a person that has different types of uh, attributes, how do you get any kind of consistency there? And, you know, like, uh, in a in a relational model, you know that you've got a table and that table has X columns. So you know that basically when you are um, getting a list of, of people, they're all going to have the same attributes. Yeah. How do you work with that in a, in a scenario where there is not there's no longer this restriction that you you know, you do have a certain uh, columns that that you could query on? Yeah. For instance? So basically, there are two two aspects to that. So uh, for once, uh, your consistency model most often lives in, in the application uh, layer. So basically, because your application reads and writes uh, the data anyway uh, of the database, and you already have all these kind of uh, attributes in your data classes or in your in your entities, um, the application uh, takes care of most of the consistency. Uh, you can add some like optional constraints in EFJ that kind of um, represent these. Uh, Types and um, and properties on on nodes and relationships, um, but uh, most often people stick with the application level uh, consistency. So there isn't even a single constraint on on Neo4j that says it needs to have an ID, for instance. Uh, you can put these kinds of constraints in, and for IDs, it's quite useful to have them because you want to have like something like uniqueness of IDs. And also be able to quickly find uh, things by IDs. Uh, you can also put in other constraints, but they are optional, so you don't you're not required to put put them in, right? Uh, and that um, I mean the, the reason for that is that it's oftentimes real world data is very uh, you know messy and and different, and depending on the source, it's uh, not really uh, well aligned. And so kind of to be able to handle this kind of data quickly, and also to build um, applications really quickly. Uh, we found that 
having consistency both in the application and the database all the time uh, often causes a lot of additional round trips that you have to do to the operations department, to the DBA, uh, and so on, to kind of, oh, I want to add a field here, so I have to like ask these five people, people instead of just adding the data, basically. Right. Right. And, and do you end up having basically a type field in every node, like a type that says it's person, another type that says it's car or whatever? That's actually uh, something that we handle with something uh, we call labels. Uh, so we can add uh, labels to uh, nodes. So for instance, a person label or a car label or a company label. And that's kind of representing the type um, in, in Neo4j. So, and Which I assume is useful in the scenario where you want to look at the database from outside of the application. Layer, exactly. Right? So you can just uh, look at the... Uh, database uh, meta model basically and then you see uh, uh, cars always have an owner on always have like a service contract or a person has like a company that they work at or friends or they have like a purchase history or something like that so you can look basically on, on the meta model uh, on the higher level uh, of uh, node labels and relationship types basically so you see what my world looks like on, a, on an abstract uh, level uh, that's definitely possible Okay. Yeah. And then you say you have these relationships, right? So I have yeah. like, for example, person relation is, uh, speaks at conference. Yeah. So the relationship there would be speaks, yeah. which in itself can have um, attributes yeah, exactly. as well, right? So they could, for instance, um, uh, say uh, what time the talk was or uh, other information about, uh, about that. Or um, if you have uh, other information that's... Um, for instance, related to a certain confidence score or so. For instance, you know a certain fact and you want to say, okay, the, the confidence that I have in this fact is like X, for instance. Or if you have distance between cities or something like that, or you have a weight uh, that you want to assign uh, in this relationship, then you can put these kind of properties on, on the relationship. Or time span. When you say, okay, this is I'm living at this place from this date to this date. So you have like this time span that kind of represents how long this relationship is valid. Uh, then you put these as, um, can put these as attributes on the relationship itself. Right. And one of the things that you were saying is that uh, in terms of queries, this is more efficient, right? In, yeah. When you're trying to run these complex queries and the relational models, yeah. right? Basically the graph database doesn't, that's an interesting trick. So all the other databases are resolving relationships at query time. So basically when you do the query, it starts to look up stuff in, in indexes or in tables to find is A related to B related to C and, and so on. But the uh, graph database actually, uh, because the relationships are already in the database, so you don't have to do these lookups in, in indexes, but you basically just follow the relationships because you're, kind of prematerialized all these connections already when you insert the data. So that means uh, from uh, 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 from other databases, the, the, the main difference is really that these kind of use only an index to find a starting point or a bunch of starting points, and then basically follow these relationships through the database. Whereas all the other databases have to, for each kind of step, they have to go to the database again to an index and look up, okay, what's the entities, what's the entities, what's the entities. And that makes it uh, much more efficient to uh, do kind of complex queries or deep queries or long long paths between between entities or deep trees, for instance. Um, right, because one of the types of queries that Neo4j excels at is in the scenarios where you say, for example, you know, find me... Uh, all of the speakers that have given a talk around this specific topic 
uh, at these conferences, but also are friends with some other speakers that like to drink whiskey, right? Exactly. Um, so that'll be you, me, and a few, exactly. <laughs> a few dozen more, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's these relationships which, um, from my understanding, is very simple to query Neo4j for one, right? Yeah, exactly. So what we what we try to do is, uh, if, if you think of this diagram that you would draw on a whiteboard uh, between a speaker and a talk and a topic and then their friends and uh, like their favorite drinks, uh, if you think about this visual model and you want to use this as a, as a query, right? So uh, it would be really cool if you could take uh, basically uh, what we do, uh, if you take ASCII art uh, to write down these uh, circles and arrows uh, in the query language and then uh, basically send, tell the database, I want to find this pattern, basically, right? And then the database goes goes ahead and does this for you. And that's what we did in, in Cypher, our, our query language, which is uh, ASCII art-based. So you kind of put in this graph pattern uh, that uh, with, like, parentheses and arrow tips and, and dashes and, uh, and so on. Um, so which actually spells out this pattern uh, very, very easily. And then um, database figures out uh, how to most efficiently find this, uh, find this information. So this is essentially kind of like query by example in a sense, right? Exactly. Where the, the example is ASCII art representing the actual thing that you want to obtain, right? Exactly. So it's kind of query by example on, an, on a higher level, basically, yeah. right? So because your example is not a concrete, speaker yes, correct. but it would be yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like speaker as a concept exactly but you can also put in concrete things so if you say i want to have like this drink whiskey it would be one entity right so uh, or drink type uh, whiskey that would be for instance one entity and uh, then you would say okay and i'm starting with hardy for instance and this would also be an entity so it's actually a mixture of concrete entities that you can put in but also like higher level uh, abstractions like a talk or a friend or stuff like that right and um and uh, the cool thing is that um, this kind of pictorial syntax is very easy to, to read and write, not just for developers, but also for non-developers. So what, what's, what we've seen quite a lot is that folks that come from the business side, for instance, can still uh, now with this graph query language participate in the, in the development because they can still understand what these queries are about because it's kind of basically spelling out almost like a sentence what, uh, what they do. And uh, that... Uh, made uh, development for, for a bunch of folks really easier because they now have this closer feedback loop with the, with the business folks to uh, valid, validate that um, what they do is really the, the right thing. And that was quite, quite uh, useful and surprising for us as well. So one of the things that I was going to ask, which I usually ask a lot of people that have, you know, um, a library or uh, uh, whatever framework, etc., that interrupts with Kotlin is obviously uh, Neo4j is, well, J stands for Java, I assume, right? Yeah. Or, or the JVM, yeah, right? Exactly. And And you have client libraries that allow you to uh, run these queries in, in the form of uh, ASCII art, so to speak, yeah, right? Yeah. So one of the questions I normally ask is, have you thought about the idea of adding a DSL uh, using Kotlin? But speaking to you now, I'm wondering, well, first of all, have you thought about it? But I'm actually thinking, would this even make sense if what you're trying to represent is an ASCII art of what you want beyond actually finding nicer symbols uh, to, to you know, represent this ASCII art and then overriding these uh, symbols, which isn't actually possible as such in, in Kotlin? Yeah, that's... Uh... 
that's the only drawback, right? I, I was actually really thinking about that. And uh, the problem is that you don't have like free operator, operator overloading to have like pure ASCII art uh, uh, mapping. Um, you can uh, definitely do a DSL. Uh, so the NevaJ driver, uh, the supported driver is uh, in, in Java, uh, of course. And uh, the NevaJ Java APIs are also kind of available. And so what I thought about is actually to add, um, so, so there are these node and relationship uh, classes in, in the Java API. And what I thought is to add a bunch of extension functions that make it easier to, to work with them. So they become a kind of a DSL. Um, so that you can go from a node to a relationship and get a sequence back and then do a where filter and you basically build up like a pipeline, like an, a streams or a sequence pipeline. But even beyond uh, the pipeline in that sense, I'm just wondering if, if you, for example, were to take the concept of uh, uh, infix functions, mm -hmm. right? And, and use those to kind of create a nice flow in, in the sense of like, you know, yeah. looking for nodes of type speakers where uh, has relationship, et cetera. And, yeah, exactly. And so so, so um, that's actually something uh, that should be possible. Perhaps you can sit down at some point and, and try out and see how far we get actually with that for, for DSL and where uh, we would hit any limits. Uh, what's also quite cool is uh, because you have uh, data classes in Kotlin, uh, you can use the meta information from the data classes to drive a lot of, of the things as well, right? So because you have like all the properties and, and the type of the class, and so you can also um, use them as, for instance, inputs and outputs, so you can uh, uh, deconstruct um, the structure uh, results from the query into data classes, or the other way around, you can put a data class into the um, into the uh, query as parameters, but you could also use them as um, as part of the DSL as well, so that the DSL could actually take a data class and would treat this as a node or relationship, for instance. Yeah, and I mean, they're doing some interesting stuff in that area uh, in, with Arrow. They're using annotation processes to basically, you know, um, generate some, some code uh, where then you can use that code in your project to, to do these um, queries, although they're using it for the concept of um, lenses, which is basically trying to dig into to data classes, right? Yeah. Uh, and it would be interesting to see if something along these lines would be possible for Neo4j, because one of the things I'm wondering is like, you know, as, as, the, as complexity of these uh, queries grow, does this ASCII art scale or not? Um. It scales actually quite far uh, because something that we added uh, in the language is a data flow operator. So basically, you uh, write little query parts that you then connect with a kind of data flow operator. That means uh, each of these query parts is in itself uh, easy to understand and, and um, kind of you can grasp them with, with one uh, look at them. Um, but then you compose your query into a larger uh, uh, parts into with these data flow operators. And that works um, quite okay. So I mean, of course, you get always these monster queries that are then incomprehensible, especially also if people use uh, very uh, undescriptive names for, for, their, for their entities as variables and, and, and so on. Um, what's actually quite cool about the query language as well is... Um, that it offers a lot of uh, things like list comprehensions and map comprehension, uh, map comprehensions, pattern comprehensions, and so on. So uh, things that you oftentimes have to kind of do on the client side with other query languages, you can do here within the query. So you don't have to do all these round trips um, 
from the client to the server and, and, and back again, because you already can do a lot of uh, list processing, for instance, of filtering and, and, and so on of collections directly in the query. And, and that would be also interesting to see in how much in a DSL we could project actually uh, expressions from uh, from the Kotlin AST into like uh, filters and, and things like that uh, as well. So that could be an interesting interesting experiment uh, uh, as well. And um, now one of the other things that is making the rounds recently is GraphQL. And I know that you yeah. mentioned to me that you were doing some things around GraphQL. Exactly. Uh, how, how and what are you doing and how is it related? Um, actually, it's quite cool. Uh, so, uh, of course, Neo4j has this concept of uh, user-defined user uh, extensions and procedures and functions. Because Neo4j is a Java-based database, you can extend it with uh, code in any JVM language, basically. And uh, so what I, what I started a while ago is to build a GraphQL um, integration for Neo4j, uh, which basically um, takes a GraphQL query. So GraphQL is actually not a database query language, but it's an API query language. So it's um, I don't know if you had a, a talk on, on that yet. Yeah, it's just uh, I yeah I'm uh, somewhat familiar with it, yeah. and uh, it's, I I always like Facebook in that they kind of like to confuse stuff with their naming. I mean, <laughs> that's, React that's and, true. and GraphQL. Yeah. And that's anyway, true. But... So it's an it's a schema-based API query language. So you basically define a schema of entities and their relationships, and then you have a query language that is strongly typed, very uh, strict, and then you build basically a tree of queries. So you, similar to what we said before with like Hardy speaks at conference about this topic and someone else speaks about this topic and, and so on. So you can do these tree queries. You can't do arbitrary queries, but you can do these tree queries that are really cool for your I components because your I component basically says, I want to have this kind of shape of data as as query. And it's flexible in terms of there's no restriction on what you can like express in terms of these uh, query trees. And when I looked at this, um, I was speaking to Rod Johnson, and he asked me, hey, Michael, can you build a GraphQL integration for Neo4j? Okay, cool. Uh, can't be too hard, right? And uh, what it turned out to be quite quite interesting is that these GraphQL queries can be projected one-to-one -to, -one to a Cypher query, to a single Cypher query, because expressing trees uh, against a graph database is kind of really straightforward and one of the easiest things that we can do. And so what we do in our uh, GraphQL extension uh, for Neo4j is basically we render GraphQL queries into Cypher queries, execute them in one go, and then return the results, which is different to all the other GraphQL integrations with other databases because they do n plus one SQL queries, for instance, for each GraphQL query. And uh, when I built this integration, uh, the first iteration I think I did in Java, and then I switched to Kotlin because it was so much easier to do all this language processing, you know, uh, like filter from on, on the AST or the uh, database, uh, the, the, the schema specification and filter out for certain attributes and, and things like that, uh, do conditions and complex um, query patterns and, and so on. So now the uh, Neo4j GraphQL uh, extension has been in, written in Kotlin for two years or more. Or more. So quite a long time, and I can't be happier um, to use Kotlin there a, on a daily basis um, because it's really very succinct and uh, clear and, um, of course, safer as well. And the Java interop is really cool. So there's this uh, Java uh, Neo4j, sorry, this GraphQL Java library from um, Andy Marek, uh, which is really amazing. 
and I could use that without any issues uh, from Kotlin. And um, that's really uh, that was really a pleasure to to do. And I'm actually giving a talk on uh, Friday this week at GraphQL Europe about um, using Kotlin and GraphQL uh, with GraphQL Java. Um, it's called uh, Not Your Father's Java on Java, uh, building a GraphQL servers with Kotlin and, and GraphQL Java. So looking forward to that talk this, this week. Neo4j and graph databases sound really great. Um, and as you said at the very <laughs> start, like uh, otherwise you 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 wouldn't be enjoying your job, exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> For eight years now, I'm doing this, and yeah. I can't say I, I've regretted that. Uh, it's funny. When did you when did you join? So I joined in 2010. Uh, so I met Emil, the uh, founder, uh, one of the founders of Neo4j, in 2008, on a geek cruise on a ferry on the Baltic Sea, which was a mini conference on a, on this ferry for two days. And there was this Swedish guy talking about graph databases and how cool they are. And so I started to build some stuff there. And, and then two years later, he asked me if I want to join them. And I was employee number 10, 10 or something like that. In April, you said? Uh, it was in 2010. Uh, I started in May, I think. Uh, okay. So because I started at JetBrains in 2010 as well. So I started <laughs> cool. January the 2nd. So, yeah. Cool. Uh, so anyway, going back to the question, uh, you know, I'm I'm sure you get asked a lot. Okay, you as as you said at the very beginning, like you know, the, a lot of things in our life can be modeled as relationships, with that could be mapped to Neo4j. So, where are there situations in which you wouldn't recommend Neo4j as the primary source of truth, for instance, in an application? So, I, I think um, one uh, one aspect that's um, important in a graph usually have higher quality data so basically you wouldn't store like raw data uh, like events or sensor events or click data directly in a, in a graph database you would use a time series database uh, like hbase or cassandra or uh, InfluxDB or something like that for that and in, in a graph you would kind of store the the higher level aggregated uh, model uh, the other thing that you also wouldn't do is like binary data so movies images and, and things like that which shouldn't go to to, to a graph database and any uh, other use case where you have extremely high write loads, so like um, if you continuously have to write millions of records per second or so, then uh, graph databases are also not uh, best suited for that. Uh, otherwise, it's because they're really flexible and they have a really flexible data model, I think most of the use cases that you can do with a relational database, you can also do with a graph database, plus all the other ones that you can't do as well with relational databases. Um, so recommendation and fraud and and social and, and so on. Uh, something uh, that might not be as performant as relation databases is large-scale aggregation. So if you do like aggregations over all your data across uh, several dimensions, uh, grouping and counting and summing and, and things like that, uh, that's something that, for instance, column stores or relation databases are uh, higher performant than, than graph databases. And what about in terms of updates, like frequent updates? Oh, yeah. So Neo4j itself is actually a transactional uh, database. Uh, so it's meant to be uh, run in real-time scenarios where you have frequent updates. Uh, but uh, as I said, uh, it's probably not if you have like tens or hundreds of millions of updates per second, but rather like in the millions of the update, updates per second. Um, so if you go beyond that, then um, you uh, have some 
like scalability limits in terms of how much data you can write uh, at once. Because uh, graph databases are not so well suited for sharding uh, because of this highly connected uh, data, it's really tough uh, to say where do you cut them off, right? And as soon as you cut stuff off, then you basically get, uh, you introduce network latency and network hops within your query because you have to kind of jump the machine to continue on this other machine with the with the rest of your query. And that's why, at least currently, we uh, run on clusters that have full replicas of your data. And um, that's why kind of the limits of your machine are the limits of the right performance that uh, that you can get. Cool. And what is the actual model in terms of licensing? Um, so Neo4j is an open source uh, database. It's so all the code is on GitHub. It's uh, GPL licensed and um, comes in two editions. So one is Neo4j Community Edition, which is the full graph database uh, with everything, and the um, Enterprise Edition, which is commercial. Uh, comes with all these production features that you would want to use when you run in 24-7 and use a facing application like monitoring, backup, clustering, uh, monitoring, um, support, and, and, and so on. So there's like this distinction that uh, the, the database itself uh, with the engine and the query engine and, and everything is uh, open source license under GPL. And then the enterprise edition is also open source, uh, but it's uh, licensed under commercial license. That's the, the business model, which kind of basically from uh, selling the, the licenses, we pay the developers for, for Neo4j and myself as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, we do we do have to make a living and exactly. we do need to get paid, right? Uh, uh, and uh, everyone wants to see progress and new features and new capabilities and better performance and someone has to build all these things, right? So Yeah, I know. And it's like, uh, you know, I mean, I, I love this uh, a lot of times. There's always this debate about, uh, oh, it's open source and I, I only use open source. No. Often a lot of people that claim that is because they you they want free. They're not necessarily caring about the open source aspect of yeah. it, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, we still the the other day again, I was having a discussion with with someone uh, around financial models around open source, and it's interesting that every time you bring up this topic, everyone points you to a single success story, which is Red okay, Hat, yeah, exactly. right? And but you know it's uh it's it only one success story that yeah, something like, exactly there's something wrong with that. Like Red Hat has shown that the entire world can build a, a successful business model around open source. Red Hat showed it. Yeah. Show me many many other ones okay. because you know if, if we look at for example co companies such as uh you know a Microsoft which is being touted nowadays for all of their uh, open source contributions what they're doing is actually setting their cloud platform, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, yeah. but anyway. Cool. Well, it was great chatting with you, Michael. Yeah, it's it's awesome having you on, and I really think we should uh, do this again. Yeah, definitely. I have one more thing that I would like to, to mention, at least. is uh, so, Something that we uh, built for our own community, but also for the Kotlin community and some others, is a community graph. So that's kind of a Neo4j database that... Um, holds all the activity of people around Kotlin on Twitter, Stack Overflow, Git, uh, GitHub, and, and, and so on. Uh, 
And it's actually quite impressive to see how much is happening in the Kotlin community. So how many people are contributing, tweeting, how many GitHub repositories are created, and how many questions are answered and asked on Stack Overflow. So that's that is very nice. Where, what, what is the address? Uh, so it's an, uh, there's a GitHub uh, repository for it. Perhaps you can put it into the into the show notes. Yeah, I'll put it in and, the show notes. Um, so actually, there's also uh, some overviews and things like that. And um, so if anyone is interested on like building a cool uh, UI or Android app uh, using this data, uh, I would be happy to to chat with you. Absolutely. And then if you give me the links, we'll add it to the show yeah. notes. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you again for coming on. Thank and you. We'll speak soon. Yeah. Talk to you soon. Yeah.